Amen. Please be seated. Normally, I would say you could look just at your insert, but today it will be necessary for everybody to turn in their Bibles for the full of the passage we will be looking at today. Um, It's 934 in your pew Bible if you want your hard copy edition there for you, but if you have your electronic version, that's fine too. Just go to Acts 25, starting at verse 13. This is where we left off. And this event, this account, takes all of the rest of 25 and chapter 26. And rather than cut it up into smaller pieces, I think the full impact and even the intention of the author is to look at this episode on the whole. So I'll take a couple hours this morning to go through this, but we'll get there and uh, together. See, now we won't. Now you're relaxed and it'll, I can go an hour and a half. So we are now at Acts 25.13. This is an exciting episode, an escalating episode in the life and ministry of Paul. Um, we have in the book of Acts the account of Christ expanding his kingdom by the sending of his empowering spirit to the apostles and then to the members of the church, and that has continued to this day his expansion of his kingdom, an invisible kingdom, no doubt, but a powerfully growing kingdom that started in the book of Acts. Paul has stood before the Jewish leaders on multiple occasions. He stood before the Roman tribune Claudius Lysias in these last chapters. He has stood before Felix, the Roman governor, and was placed in jail for two years, even though he did nothing that warranted it. He has just stood before Festus. That's where we come in the text now. The governor who replaced Felix. And in that hearing, Paul, as a Roman citizen, appealed to Caesar rather than putting himself into the Jewish court again. Festus, with a crowd around, had to grant him his wish and sent him, it was going to send him to Rome, where he'll go. But Agrippa, who is the Jewish king of the Herodian line, it would be customary for the Roman governor to check with that king just to let them know what he was doing with a Jewish citizen. And so we pick up in the passage after Festus has delivered Paul to Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II to be exact, where he gives his case, his defense now, uh, for the third time in these chapters. He gives his defense to Agrippa II, and we have his response. And we'll look at the whole of the passage, but for now let's begin by seeing ahead the response of the interaction between Agrippa and Paul. This is God's holy word, Acts 26, 19, and I'll read to verse 25 to begin. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so very grateful for the revelation that your word provides. 
We eagerly approach the scriptural text this morning and wait upon your Spirit's aid to give us understanding and the ability to follow what it says. We love you, Lord Jesus, because you first loved us. Thank you for loving us and giving yourself for us. Now we come to your feet, looking forward to what you will teach us by your word and spirit. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When we had left off, you will recall that Paul made his appeal to Festus, asking to be heard by Caesar. Festus grants Paul this desire or this appeal to send him to Rome. Now, before sending him to Rome, he has to inform the Jewish king. Now, it's not a technical requirement, but he knows it's the way to keep peace with the Jewish people, since Paul was both a Jewish citizen and a Roman citizen. So it's clear that Agrippa II knows who Paul is. Agrippa II was the great-grandson of Herod the Great, the one who uh, sent out for the babies to be killed in Bethlehem. He's the, the child of Herod I, Herod Agrippa I, the one we met in Acts chapter 12, who died a horrific death at the hand of the angel of the Lord. He was 17, Agrippa II was, when he assumed the throne, so someone else functioned in his stead for a little bit for a while. Now he's assumed the throne. He's not as corrupt as the others, but he's corrupt. He's like the other Herodian in the Herodian line. And this is who wants to hear a bit of what Paul's case is. And what we observe here in an escalating fashion now before Agrippa II is something that's been common and building up but important for us, nevertheless to repeat. Paul's proclamation of Christ, especially in the courts of the kingdom of men, his proclamation of Christ before the kingdom of the world, you might say, gives all of us Christians, the church, courage and clarity and confidence about what our message should be to the kingdom of the world. Paul's Holy Spirit-empowered courage in the face of opposition and accusation gives boldness to every Christian in every generation since. So let's go to the passage and see the episode unfold. I mentioned to you it begins in Acts 25, verse 13. Follow with me. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus, and they stayed there many days. You have the kingdom of the world on display between Festus from Rome and now, even though it's technically a religious nation, it's very secular at this point, and certainly Agrippa sees himself as one with human power. And so now they assemble together to talk over this case with the apostle of Christ. Agrippa brings with him Bernice. Bernice is his sister, and there are murmurings about um, an incestuous relationship. It was a strange, a strange partnership of rule that they had. They were a bit of a scandal to the Jewish people, yet the Jewish people depended on Agrippa's representation with Rome. They stayed there with Festus and were briefed on all that had occurred. Verse 14, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met with the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. This is the kingdom of the world's court deciding what to do with the apostle of Jesus Christ. Verse 17. So when they came together here, I made no delay, 
but on the next day took my seat in the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. So there's no mistake that the crux of the argument Paul was making, the main theme of his message that upset the Jewish order was his preaching of Christ, the resurrected one, the Messiah. Being resurrected, he has to be the Messiah. The Jews knew full well what admitting his resurrection meant. The problem is there's too many eyewitnesses. So let's not have that evidence, let's crush Paul. That's what they're doing. The kingdom of the world is shook up. You say, well, that's a religious group saying They were enamored with their union with the world and didn't want it shook up. And if Jesus had been raised again, he was the Messiah. He was their king. We're happy the way we are, said the Jewish leaders. So it really is the kingdom of the world against the kingdom of God. And it's on full display trying to exert its supposed or its feigned authority. He recognizes that the message that Paul was preaching was this Jesus who had been raised. Of course, Festus didn't see much about any of this. Agrippa, his Jewish background, his knowledge of what the prophets would have preached and taught, that would stir something in him that Paul then taps into. Verse 20, being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. He's just laying out what he was doing based on the law, based on normal practices. Paul's case, and he appeals to Caesar. Now, I want you to notice Agrippa's response. Verse 22, then Agrippa said to Festus, it's like he's intervening. He can't stop this process, but he wants some say in it. This is a show for the Jewish people, but there's some interest that Agrippa does have with this message that Paul's preaching, at least with Paul. Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. Intrigued by the debate between Paul and the Jewish leaders, Agrippa wants to hear Paul speak. You have the kingdom of the world on full display in what happens next. So they're going to have Paul come in multiple times. Now Paul's been put before different people to have a hearing, to have a trial. And here is the world on display. Verse 23, so on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. Now think of this, pomp, pompous, the root word for pompous. And that's what this is. Uh, they're put on full display for everybody to see their power so they could put the apostle of Jesus Christ on trial. That, that's the kingdom of the world in full bloom. Uh, we're really the ones in charge is what man says. Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, verse 23, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Think of a wedding reception uh, in the sense of the waiting, where everyone's waiting for the bride and the groom to come in, and they're in the reception hall. There's that kind of pause. And Now, in that case, it's a wonderful celebration when they actually come, but everyone's really hungry by that moment, and they're waiting for them to come. But think of this in a much less sanctified way, where Agrippa and his sister show up with great pomp while everyone's been waiting for this thing to start. And sort of like this big Tom Turkey in full strut with his feathers outstretched, Herod enters the gallery to be seen and adored. 
the kingdom of the world on full, arrogant display. The kingdom of the world loves to worship men, and Herod loved to be worshipped. And he would put Paul on trial. He would hear what this man had to say. Despite all the other trials he had, he would have the wisdom to know what to do. Only from a heavenly angle can we fully appreciate how pompous kings like Herod are. Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Now, picture this based on what scholars think Paul looked like. There are some late 1st century, early 2nd century testimonies to what Paul looked like. So, probably people who knew people who saw Paul in person. Several commentaries will note this appearance. He was only of little, a little fellow, an unimposing person in appearance, balding with beetle brows, hooked nose and bandy legs, yet full of grace, wearing neither crown nor gown, but only handcuffs, a chain probably connected to it, perhaps a plain prisoner's tunic. He nevertheless dominated the court with his quiet Christ-like dignity and confidence. The humble apostle of Christ the representative of Christ in his kingdom standing before one of the kings of earth, verse 24. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me. Now hold on, we've read the passage. Did the whole Jewish people petition him or the leaders of the Jews? So he's already embellishing his case, that is Festus, to transfer him over to Agrippa. Whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. Festus wants to be seen as a man of reason, a man who listens to the populace, a man of deserved authority, a leader of the kingdom of the world. Festus also spins the story on how Paul was before Agrippa in the audience there assembled. Verse 25, But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. So he's trying to cover for the fact that he didn't check with Herod. So now he's acting as though, you know what? Before I send him, I I would like your input to write up his charges. He's also very deftly trying to pass the buck a little because he knows there's no case. And when Caesar hears the case, why did you send me this guy? Maybe the response. So Festus says in verse 26, but I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that you, after we have examined him, may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. An interesting relationship between Festus and Agrippa. Uh, They were really on equal power, but Festus had orders to not step over the line too much with Agrippa. But Agrippa had no uh, prevailing power on Festus, and they're passing back and forth, both knowing going to Caesar does not look good for their discernment for their ability to understand what is happening. And there's the kingdom of the world, super, super proud of itself and its ability to discern and decide and to to give justice. But here, in full display, with all their pomp, they can't even come up with a clear charge. But that's the world with such a high view of its own court, putting the apostle of Christ on display. Despite having no real case against Paul, just like there was no case against Jesus, the world acts with authority anyways. Herod stood representative, a person who thought authority came from man. Verse 26, verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, 
you have permission to speak for yourself. John Stott gives great summary to this episode, writing, It was a dramatic moment when the holy and humble apostle of Jesus Christ stood before the representative of the worldly, ambitious, morally corrupt family of the Herods, who for generation after generation have set themselves in opposition to truth and righteousness. The king of this world told the apostle of Christ, you have permission to speak. This is the kingdom of world, the world on display, full of its own autonomy, fully of their own supposed authority, fully of themselves. The kingdom of this world and its rulers think that they can stand in judgment of God. It's like this. If a person comes to the king or to the court and says that they're speaking for God or have a message that God would give, whatever truth they claim or proclaim or religion they advocate or faith they promote, that judge gets to decide if they can say it. That shows you what they think of themselves. You can be religious, even in the Roman Empire, as long as it doesn't impinge upon Caesar, the real God, who's a man. The common experience on this earth, for Christians especially, is that freedom has often been based, at least on a superficial level, on the approval of certain people. It feels that way. We know the truth of who's sovereign. But that's how the kingdom of the world thinks of itself. That's the kingdom of the world in conflict with the kingdom of God. Festus and Agrippa typify the kingdom of the world in its view of itself and its authority. Paul is the representative of the kingdom of God. Paul then moves to give his defense. He stretches out his hand, it says in verse 1, to make his defense. We could be sure in this case Luke was there. Many times Luke gets eyewitness accounts and writes them in the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Here though, to say that Paul stretches out his hand as he's ready to speak, put his hand out and start to talk. Um, you can assume Luke is there in the audience as he writes this out with such detail. And here Paul will then give his commissioning from Christ. And we will see on display what the pronouncing or the proclamation of Jesus does, what it produces. Um, when the true Christ is preached, there is an offense that people take to it. This is the natural response of fallen man, unregenerate man, to be offended by the true Christ in the preaching of him. Not one that's made up and crafted into some kind of, some kind of a man-made Jesus who does whatever we want or is depicted in the pictures you see. Uh, but the true biblical Christ brings an offense, and that's what Paul declares and speaks concerning. Verse 2, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So he's already had his turn with the Jewish leaders. He knows where they are. They're not going to listen to his biblical reasoning for Messiah. He can't relate to Festus as a Roman pagan who doesn't know, but I've got a chance to talk to you, Agrippa. You're a little out of this general circle. I know you know what the Bible says. I know you're aware of the prophets, so I'll speak to you. Verse 4, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. So I'm coming to you not as some religious zealot from a vacuum I was a Pharisee, and the Jews will all tell you I w to be a Pharisee is the upper, upper percentage of the upper percentage of those who are knowledgeable of the Scripture and of their traditions and of the teachings. And he was a Pharisee, so he knows full well what he believed and what he was talking about. 
Paul's pre-Christian life was on public and wide display. And he was a public terror to Christians. Everyone knew who he was. He was not someone who was anonymous. Verse 6. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. This is where the offense comes in. He's starting to express the reason they're, they're focused on him is because he's preaching Christ. This is the problem. This is why they have me on trial. This is why they want me dead. Verse 6 again. Now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. What's the promise? It's the messianic promise. To which our 12 tribes, verse 7, hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. They're worshiping in the temple and they were uh, in the tabernacle before and in the synagogues all around the Roman Empire because they're waiting for their Messiah. That's why they worship. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Because he's been preaching that Christ is the fulfillment. And that's an offense to the Jews. That's an offense to them to say this about Christ. He is on trial for Jesus Christ. That's why Paul's standing there. Paul says the Jews are the ones who have denied the fulfillment of Scripture clearly displayed in the person of Christ. They are offended by the notion of Jesus being Christ. And here's the reality for us living in any age as Christians. The preaching of the true Jesus is always an offense to the unregenerate. It always is. The preaching of Christ necessarily confronts people with the fact of their sin and their need for salvation. And no one wants to hear that message except for God moved them to hear it. The preaching of the gospel is an offense to people who do not want to be charged with wrongdoing. We don't need a savior, they say. We especially don't want Jesus as Savior. And the Jews might be saying here, especially Jesus, the cursed one who was killed by the Romans on a cross. Don't tell us that our Messiah would be defeated by a Roman power. He's not our Messiah. Modern man says we don't need substitution for our sin. God accepts us. Their denial of the Bible's revelation about Christ and his crucifixion is the denial of the sin that needs atonement. Think of your own experience just for a moment, brothers and sisters. God has opened your eyes to the truth about the reality of the depth of your own sin. And you're sure about it yourself. You know you're a sinner. But God has also graciously opened your eyes to the beauty of Jesus and all that he has provided for us. You know that you are saved in Christ, that you are safe in Christ. You are clothed in Christ's righteousness for eternity, not even just a short life. But you have friends who think you're crazy for thinking any of that. You're not that kind of sinner. You don't need that kind of Savior. Or, you're too much of a sinner. You couldn't have a Savior. Christ is an offense to the world, as is his gospel. This is why Paul says to the Corinthians, who are relatively new Christians, saved out of paganism, they didn't have their religious background, and he tells the Corinthians who are confused about what's happening in their life now that they're becoming believers, and people around them are not. Paul writes to the Corinthians, first words of his first epistle, For the word of the cross is foolishness or folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's not in the middle. It's not like everybody thinks it's kind of okay. It's either really foolish or it's the power of God. That's the offense of the gospel. And Paul wants to relate, because all of us can relate, with the corruption that unbelief brings. And most of the people he's speaking to are probably uh, trapped in that corruption of unbelief. Now God uses the preaching of the gospel with his spirit to shake people or to awaken the the dead. Uh, And so this is what he's doing in his preaching. But he wants to tell his story 
of corruption, personal corruption, to then set up the preaching once again of the transforming grace of Christ. He speaks to his corruption in verse 9. I myself, Paul says, was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So he's going to set himself up not to just be the rank and file card carrying unbeliever, but he's one of the most extreme, one of the most zealous. Uh, Verse 9, I was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Christ, Jesus. And I did so in Jerusalem. Not only did I think about it and have a philosophy about it, I acted out on it. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. So Paul explains that his hatred for Christ and Christians was on an exceptional level. He even went so far as to have them arrested and even killed. He confidently and publicly advocated for the death of Christians. This is the corruption of unbelief on full display, run its full course. This is where it always ends up if it's, if it's allowed to go that far. Verse 11, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I mean, he chased them down. In fact, remember where he met Jesus. It was on the road to go persecute. Verse 12, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. I was heading to Damascus to have more in prison and more killed. That's how bad unbelief unravels. That's where it goes. That's the depth of corruption that it can lead to in a person to make them even want to kill those who profess or hold on to Christ. You know, a few weeks ago, I made reference to the pastor Wang Yi from China who was then uh, put in jail. It could be 10 years before he gets out of jail for professing and preaching Christ. But I don't have to even look to yesterday's report to find even more to tell you about. In Nigeria this week, where more than 1,000 believers were slaughtered in 2019, 6,000 in the last five years at, at low estimate, another pastor, Pastor Lowen Adimi, was abducted and killed on Monday. Many of you probably saw it come across your social media feeds and news feeds. This happens the world over. When corruption of unbelief reaches a certain level, it works itself out this way. And this is what Paul is saying was even true of himself. So he knows what hatred is on display and what hatred is brewing up for him. He uses himself as an example of corruption to then show the next point, starting in verse 13, when he meets Jesus Christ, the supernatural transformation that Jesus Christ brings to his own. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. He's starting to lay out a history. And notice what he says, and those who journeyed with me. There are people who are with him on this journey that can testify. This is not just some Joseph Smith story from upstate New York finding some gold coins that nobody could find. This is a story that has witnesses who are alive and and are there to experience this. Verse 14, and when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me, In the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. In other words, it's hard for you to ignore what the prophets have said, and you should be preaching. And I, verse 15, said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
Paul met the risen Christ. He's saying to Agrippa, I've seen him. I have met the risen Jesus. This isn't a myth among many witnesses who have seen the risen Christ. Verse 15, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And notice the commission that now comes from the risen Christ. But rise, verse 16, stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me in those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to the light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And remember, he's aiming at Agrippa, who although is under some weight of sinful living for sure, knows a bit of the prophet's message, knows the way God has spoken to prophets, and hears what Paul's describing, and knows if it's true, Paul has to bring this message. This is not just any apostle or messenger. This is a capital A apostle, a messenger commissioned by Christ, of whom there are only a few. He saw the risen Christ and was personally commissioned. So he says in verse 19, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus. I kept going to Damascus and immediately started telling people about Christ. Yes, the one corrupted by unbelief. Yes, the one who was killing Christians. But I'm transformed now. I've met the risen Christ. He's given me a commission. I can't be stopped from doing this until God says I'll be stopped. Declared first those in Damascus, verse 20, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. That last line, that's a direct reference to the Jerusalem council that told the apostles and the elders and the missionaries to go out and preach the message of Christ and tell people in connection with their salvation not to be saved, but as a result of it, uh, you should follow, you should abstain from worshiping idols. you remember this? And so Paul's being careful and technical that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance that are consistent with their repentance. He gave a careful account of the full gospel message Repentance and faith turn from godlessness as a result of conversion. Verse 21, for this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. I am actually bringing to fulfillment the truth of all that the Jewish faith has delivered. And Agrippa has to be listening on the edge of his seat about what Paul's saying. In verse 23, he ties it all together that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. In a very personal form, Paul gives the account of his conversion, the transformation that comes from Christ, that Christ brings Paul says it was amazing grace that saved a wretch like himself. The corruption of unbelief could not have been deeper than it was in Paul, yet he was transformed by the amazing grace of Christ, and he was called to deliver that message both to small and to great. And herein lies what compels all of us as Christians and as the church collectively. We are aware of our sin and corruption. We are not an assembly of holier people than anyone else. We are not self-righteous. We are aware of our lostness and our spiritual death. We have been made alive and aware of the grace of God in Christ. And so we worship him. We have to worship him. And we have to follow him. We have to do what he says. What else could we do? 
We've been transformed by the salvation of God that we have experienced, and therefore we are compelled to tell others in the many ways God gives you to tell others, in us collectively, to preach, to proclaim, to evangelize. Paul's saying, Herod, you've heard my story. You've heard my background. What else could I do but proclaim Christ? Now, remember when he laid out the same basic case to Felix? Do you remember, quiz, do you remember what Felix did? Felix said, let me think about it. That's one response you'll hear. Let me, give me some time, let me think about it. And of course, two years went by, we never hear about Felix again, and he's removed from his position. It's like, humanly speaking, he had this chance. And he says, you know, I'm interested, but uh, I don't want to commit to that. That's kind of what you get. Well, there's another response. Um, the reaction from the citizens of the world, you might call it, that's also on display here. And this is one you'll hear. We see it commonly, especially in the public arena. Not as much face-to-face, but certainly publicly. But here, after listening to all this go on, the Roman governor, Festus, is watching him talk to Agrippa. And he's kind of could stand no more. Verse 24, we see this reaction. I would say it's a common reaction in some sense. And as he was saying these things in his defense... Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. You're crazy, Paul. Stop with this stuff about meeting a risen Christ. Be done with this idea that you are transformed by Jesus of Nazareth. This is a place of honor and prestige and esteem. And you come in here with this fantastical story about meeting a risen Jewish rabbi. You are out of your mind. And your great learning, all the books you've got your head in all the time has made you crazy. You've lost your senses. That's a crazy message you have, Christians. You know, this week I saw an interview with Aaron Rodgers, who's the great quarterback of the Green Bay Packers. Not so great that they're in the Super Bowl, but the great Green Bay Packer quarterback. He had exposure and involvement to the evangelical church early in his life, and I've heard this kind of story before. Um, in his current assessment of what he thinks the Christian message is, and I say what he thinks the Christian message is, he said, I don't know how you can believe in a God who wants to condemn most of the planet to a fiery hell. He continues on, what type of loving, sensitive, omnipresent, omnipotent being wants to condemn his beautiful creation to a fiery hell at the end of all this? Now, he doesn't have the message just right, but that's what he's saying. Christianity's crazy. I mean, ultimately, it's just a crazy message you have. That's what he's saying. And many say that. Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. The response that we have from Paul brings us to a bit of a climax, at least in this story. It's a confident stance that he is able to have in the presence of the world's leaders because he has God's word on the matter. He has what is rooted in the divine, a true perspective on what is real and true. Verse 25, Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. The gospel is true, and the gospel is absolutely rational. Now, it's amazing, it's hard to comprehend why would God do it, but it's rational. Now, it's true first in this. True means something is accurate, it's reliable, it's verifiable. And Christianity is based on the verified revelation of God through the prophets and the apostles and ultimately in Jesus Christ. Christianity is based on eyewitnesses of God's revelation and work. 
Christianity is ultimately based on the historically verifiable person of Jesus, and specifically his death and his resurrection. Verifiable. Oh, no, Festus. What I'm saying is true. Rational has to do with it being reasonable or explainable. More specifically, it makes logical sense. It's sensible, the message. The Christian message is one of sin and salvation. It's a reasonable display of a way to be delivered from a deserved judgment. It's a reasonable label for mankind as sinful and corrupt. It's reasonable to understand that God is holy and just. It makes sense that mankind stands condemned before a holy God. Now, people could say that's not true, uh, but it is a rational statement. It's logical that the lawgiver would provide a way for lawbreakers to be delivered from punishment by way of worthy sacrifice while keeping intact the lawmaker's righteousness and justice. Oh no, Festus, what I'm saying is rational. I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. So when the, when the university, the pompous university professor says, that's crazy, or the football star says it, or your neighbor says it, or, now I'm not saying how you ought to respond, but oh no. We're speaking true and rational words. And you could try to minimize what I'm saying and put it off so you don't have to think about it, but I'm saying no. It's true and it's rational and you have to face it. Verse 26, he gets super personal now. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for he has not This has not been done in a corner. It's out in full display. Now it's true. Sin blinds people to the truth and makes them irrational. But that doesn't mean we should stop preaching Christ. Because if God should grant that his eyes are open, then he'll see truth and he'll be really actually rational. Unless we are exposed to the gospel and the Holy Spirit does his regenerating and illuminating work, we will remain blind to the truth and unable to comprehend Christ in the gospel. But knowing this, he turns to Agrippa and he puts it to him personally. You've got to hear what I just said and you have to face what it is. He looks past the dismissive comment of the unbelieving Festus and makes his appeal to the king who would have knowledge of God's word. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Verse 27, do you believe? I know you believe. Paul confidently and clearly appeals. And here's the thing. We could be confident in evangelizing or proclaiming because if God doesn't open their eyes, they're not going to see it any which way. But if he does, they'll see it and they'll know. And God normally works to regenerate people that way when they hear the gospel. God confidently appeals to the Bible and presses Agrippa. You know what I'm saying is true and rational. And Agrippa said to Paul, overwhelmed with everything, verse 28, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Do you know how much would have to change if I became a Christian? You know what's going on here, Paul? You're talking like this, like I could just turn. He's got this excuse also, like I, I, I can't do this now. It's another reaction. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Could even be saying, man, if I could be persuaded shortly, you'd do it. This is powerful. He, you know, he doesn't deny the truth or the rationality of what Paul says like Festus does. He just doesn't want to answer. Verse 29, Paul said, what a passionate statement. What a compassionate statement. He says to Agrippa, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you 
but also all who hear me this day might become such as I, except for these chains. I just want you to come to Christ. I just want everybody to believe in Jesus Christ. I want all of you to know the freedom that I've found in Christ, is what Paul says. And then the response to conclude the, the episode. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. They still will not take any responsibility. But God safeguards Paul for another day. In closing, if I could say something to Aaron Rodgers or people who think like he does about Christianity or their, or their facsimile of Christianity, the pseudo-Christianity that they believe, I, I would think I might say something like this. I would say, I know at first glance the creation and the inhabitants of the earth do seem beautiful. And there indeed is a beautiful fingerprint there that's faded, the image of God in every person and in his creation. No question, at first glance there is a sense of that. But you know and I know, if you just look a little deeper, even in yourself, let alone the corruptions that, are, that abound, we see the vestige of sin and rebellion if we're honest about it. Each of us, every one of us has offended a holy God. I am a sinner and you are a sinner. It is God's sovereign right to judge sin. He is God and we are not. This is God's world, not ours. That's plain. It's his world. We are his creation. But here's the amazing thing. God has made a way to escape his just wrath. He has given his only son that whoever believes in him will be saved. So Aaron, you're asking the wrong question. The question isn't what type of loving, sensitive, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent being wants to condemn his beautiful creation to a fiery hell at the end of all of this. The right line of questions from the right posture, the, the true and rational posture. What kind of God, creator God, who makes all these things, will look upon sinful man in his, this sin-cursed world and send his only begotten son to redeem it? What kind of God would save any sinners at cost to himself? It's not what kind of God would cast people to hell. It's what kind of God would save anyone. What grace there is in Christ. Come to Christ. Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. Let's pray. Father, this event with Paul in the court of man representing the message of King Jesus is a true encouragement to us I ask, I ask for your people here gathered to be personally encouraged and invigorated by our time together in your word. I ask that our study this morning would translate to boldness for Christ and his gospel this week. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.